Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore and the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Pushkin. In the opening lines of his New York Times best-selling memoir, Let Love Rule, Lenny Kravitz writes that he is deeply two-sided. His young life was all about opposites and extremes, black and white. He grew up between his West Indian grandparents' home in Brooklyn and his parents' home on the Upper East Side, where he was surrounded by his family's famous friends, legends like Miles Davis and Duke Ellington. When Lenny was 11, his mother Roxy Roker landed a starring role on the iconic sitcom The Jeffersons, moving the family out west to Los Angeles, where Lenny fell in love with classic rock, funk, and skate culture. It's also where Lenny and Rick Rubin eventually became fast friends in the late 80s. In this conversation, Lenny tells Rick candid stories about his relationship with Lisa Bonet and talks about how writing his memoir helped him finally find peace with his overbearing father. They also talk about the time Lenny, Rick, and Johnny Cash were all roommates and the day Lenny received the most devastating news of his life. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Rick Rubin and Lenny Kravitz. For some reason, I didn't realize that you grew up in New York City. I, I had no idea. For some reason, I thought you were a California kid. So I was born in Bed-Stuy. And uh, for the first five years of my life, I lived in Bed-Stuy on the weekdays and then lived on the Upper East Side with my parents on the weekends. My mom was doing theater. My mom was working at NBC. My father was at NBC. And uh, so they were real busy. But I saw them every day. They'd come from... Rockefeller Center, over the bridge to Brooklyn, have dinner with me, play with me, hang out for a bit, put me to bed. And then my mom would go do a play. My dad would go to a jazz club or do whatever because he was also uh, promoting jazz. And then when I turned five, I moved to the Upper East Side, which was 82nd between 5th and Madison, across from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And uh, I lived there on the weekdays. But... That was my life, going back and forth between Bed-Stuy and the Upper East Side, which was a very interesting contrast. Yeah. Do you know, do you know how your parents met? Yeah. They met at Rockefeller Center. My mother was a secretary working for some, you know, big cat there. And my father was uh, an assignment editor for NBC News. And they met. My father started out as a page, worked his way up, was there for many years. 
and he met my mom at work. I think they bonded over, uh, you know, theater and music and the arts. And uh, they started dating, and then he asked her to marry him, and they got married, yeah. Beautiful. Do you have any brothers or sisters, or just you? I have two sisters from my father's first marriage, so half-sisters, but, you know, they're my sisters. We don't, we don't do the half and the whatever. They're my sisters. But it was really nice to find out that I had sisters. When did you find out? I was small. I remember being, like, I don't know, three or something, when I met them, they lived upstate New York. They lived in Monroe, about an hour and 20 minutes outside of the city. I was an only child and I always kind of wished I had brothers or sisters. And then all of a sudden I had these two sisters and it was, it was cool. And then they started, you know, spending more time with us. They started going on family holidays with us. My mom insisted that my father, you know, mend this relationship. He, I, I think he wasn't so close to them at the time that they got together. Yeah. Or just that he was, you know, you know, taking his time or whatever from whatever breakup he had had before. But my mom let him know that she could not marry him and be with him if he hadn't, if he didn't fix that and he didn't get tight with his family. Uh, that's the kind of person that my mother was. As you know personally, you you knew her, and uh, so that's how that happened. Understood. Your mom was a strong force. Yeah. And all about family and love. Yeah. I think I only met your dad one time, if I remember correctly. We were, can't remember where it was, but we were next to a tour bus. I remember we were outside. Of really? A, yeah, we were outside of a tour bus, either coming before or after a show. Mm-hmm. And we just talked for a little bit, but I remember he seemed like a cool cat. No, he was cool. With all of our dynamics, you know, that were uh, interesting and tough and beautiful, uh, he was a, he was a cool person. And, you know, in writing this book that I just wrote, it helped me to understand and love him even more because for the first time I saw him as a character. I saw him as a person, as a man living his life, dealing with whatever demons and things that he had to deal with. And I realized that he was operating on what he had, yeah, what he experienced with his parents, what he experienced in the military, all the things that he went through, he was dealing with what he had and he did the best he could with it. And for the first time, as I said, I, w I was able to see him as not my dad, but as this person. And it was really freeing. Even though we made peace before he died, there were still things I realized that I was holding on to. And in writing this book, it all vanished. And I loved him and liked him more than I ever had. And that was beautiful. That was the gift and the reward and the success of writing this book. Beautiful, beautiful. What motivated, yeah. you, what motivated you to do the book? I never thought I would write a book. I wasn't interested in writing a book. A mutual friend introduced me to David Ritz, who is an incredible writer and has written all of these books on everybody, from Ray Charles to Marvin Gaye to Aretha Franklin. And uh, I met him at a dinner. We were at a Japanese restaurant in New York. And he said, you should write a book and I wanna help you write it. And I basically told him that I really never thought about it and wasn't interested in it. But by the time the dinner was over, he convinced me. I thought he was really interesting and smart. And um, I took it as a challenge. I thought, well, why not? And then he and I started hanging out and then I spent a lot of time on my own and then we'd hang out again. And, you know, it took a few years to slowly put together. And it took me a while to actually find my voice, how I wanted to tell the story. Yeah. And then in writing the book, I realized that I only wanted it to be about the first 25 years from my birth to the release of the first album and, and, and the beginning of that tour. So the album came out when I was 24, actually. Yeah. That's, that's right around the time we met, if I remember correctly. We met... We actually met before the album came out. I met you at the Roxy, no? Yeah. I remember I did that I did that showcase at the Roxy and you were there after the show waiting to talk to me and I was like so excited to meet you and we hit it off right away. It was just very natural. You felt like a brother. And then uh we never stopped hanging out. After no, it's that. true. I remember I remember being at a, a music convention where all of the different labels were 
uh, talking about their new upcoming artists. And I remember thinking everything was terrible. Like all, everyone's presentation was like all this new music and nothing was interesting. And then there was a clip of you. And it was like, oh, there's one good new th artist. It was like, I was so excited that there was one new good artist. <laughs> and that's what got me to come to see the showcase at the Roxy. Ah, okay. Um, just okay. based on seeing a little clip at a record event and thinking, mm -hmm. This is, you know, this stands apart from everything. And, and then I saw oh, the wow. live Thank performance, you, which was unbelievable. And you probably met my mother that night because she was there. Can't remember. I mean, I met her plenty yeah. of times. She was since. there. Lisa was there. We were all there. Yeah. But, but you and I hung out for a while. I remember it was, in the, it was in the audience. Everybody had left. And there was just a few people around. And you and I were just out. I remember you were wearing, in the audience you were wearing kind of a, a winter while. overcoat. Yep. It was long. I remember. It was kind of like an old pimp coat, to be, to be honest. <laughs> so funny, the details that we remember. Yeah, man. In the, in the process of working on the book, did you remember pieces of stories that over time and thinking about it came back to you in a way that you didn't know that you knew them? I was quite surprised at how much I remembered, but I tend to have a really good, you know, long-term memory. I remember things from my childhood, from you know when I was three years old, with detail. Wow! But then you know, don't ask me what you know happened yesterday or where I put something, you know. But for some reason, you know, I didn't have to uh, dig as hard as I thought I would have to. And I think it's also a time in my life that I really cherished. Like I understood somehow that I had a really good childhood, whatever it was like—the ups and the downs, whatever. I enjoyed my childhood. I enjoyed, you know, growing up in New York City in the late 60s as a, you know, very small child and the 70s at a time where music was so incredible. I mean, all you had to do was turn on the radio and everything was there. I, I, I remember listening to uh, WABC and my father's VW Bug and you'd hear Simon and Garfunkel next to Aretha Franklin, next to Jimi Hendrix, next to Led Zeppelin, next to, you know, whomever, you know, it just was all over the place. And uh, my mother was an actress. She was in, in the theater, doing avant-garde theater. Uh, she was in this incredible theater group called the Negro Ensemble Company. So I was going to plays. Uh, we were going to operas and ballets and symphonies in, in Central Park and Shakespeare in the park and the Jackson Five at Madison Square Garden and James Brown at the Apollo. And wow you know, Miles Davis and, you know, Duke Ellington at the Rainbow Room and wow. Sarah Vaughn. And I mean, it was so colorful. And my parents had so many wonderful characters around. I, I thoroughly enjoyed my childhood. And then growing up on the Upper East Side and having the Metropolitan Museum as your backyard, I'd go in there by myself and get lost and look at the art and I even had a notebook. I mean, I must've been nine years old. I had a notebook and I would take notes on the art that I saw and what I liked. And I would buy, they, were, they, they had postcards in there that you could buy with pictures of the art. And I would get postcards and, you know, I was a member of the chess club, played chess and, and then I'd go to Bed-Stuy and have that whole life. I got to see the birth of hip hop, which of course, Brooklyn was one of the spots, right? Absolutely. And I remember the first time seeing a guy in, in the front of his house, in, in, the, in the little yard in front of his house with two turntables and these big old speakers that he had built. And he was mixing and doing this whole thing. And I didn't understand what he was doing. Like, he's like, I'm playing music, right? But I didn't, I didn't understand it. I was like, you're playing records. I got, but then I, it caught on quickly and I saw what they were doing. And, you know, guys started breakdancing and bringing out the linoleum floors, you know, onto the sidewalk. And it, you know, I got to see all that. And then I moved to LA when I was 11, moved to Santa Monica, went to school in Santa Monica, John Adams Junior High. It's 1975 when my mom started the Jeffersons. And I got to see the birth of Dogtown. Incredible. And Z-Boys. Incredible. I went to school. I had... English class with this guy named Mike Humpston. His big brother was Wes Humpston. And I remember him bringing in a Dogtown board that was hand drawn 
with the cross and the dog town and the whole thing. And he brought it in and showed that, yeah, this is, this is what my brother's doing. This is dog town. So I got to see so many things happen as a, as a child that were so exciting and cultural, groundbreaking, historical. Incredible. It's funny, it's yeah. funny you talk about Dogtown and seeing the birth of hip hop. And um Well, how cool is that, right? No, it's unbelievable. And it's they're almost the same thing. You know, they're both yes. they're both examples of counterculture movements. You know, we tend to think of hip hop as a music movement. It's a counterculture movement. When I saw the Dogtown documentary, I watched it mm -hmm. not looking at it as this is about skateboarding. I thought, oh, this is the Def Jam story, except they're riding skateboards instead of making music. It's, it's a, it was a counterculture rebellion story. And you got to witness two in a row that even though they look different, were really tapping into the same kind of youth culture energy of changing the world. Super exciting. Mm -hmm. Super exciting Absolutely. and inspiring. And then on top of it, I'm growing up between a so-called black and white world, Jewish and Christian, both my parents, all these people, not having any understanding of the problems with race. For the first six years of my life, I had no clue that any of this was an issue because that's just the way it was. My mother looked like she did. My father looked like he did. Both sets of grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, etc. Our house is full of every race and every type of person from every background, religion, you name it. And it was, that was normal life. And then I went to first grade and uh, me and my parents, because we walked in, it's first day of school, your parents walk you to school. And as it seemed, everybody else's parents matched except mine. And this kid ran out in front of us and he pointed with his finger and he said, your father's white and your mother's black. And it was like this moment, like, what is, what is that? What does that mean? What is that? And why are you making uh, a scene, you know? And that's when my mother started to talk to me and explain, you know, what was what, you know, how, the, how society operated, you know, how the world was seeing things. So it was a really rich upbringing, you know, being able to have all of these contrasts and to be able to have, you know, both of these sides, to be, to be able to spend your childhood in between two opposites, like the Upper East Side and Bed-Stuy was phenomenal and taught me so much. And then what's funny is, okay, so I moved to LA and I, I'm, I'm seeing the birth of all this skate culture. So then I go back to New York, skateboarding hadn't reached then yet. So I'm, I got my board and I'm explaining all this stuff it's 1975, 76, and they have no idea what I'm talking about. Nobody's in the street riding skateboards in New York. And hip hop hadn't reached the West Coast in that way yet. So I'm watching all these guys break dance and they're, they're getting together in their apartments and they're having these you know, get togethers. Everybody's showing their moves and what's going on. I remember hearing the bridges over for the first time, you know, Boogie Down Productions, KRS-One. And I'm going back to LA and no one has a clue of what I'm talking about, you know? So I felt like I was on the, I was on the inside of these things that the opposite uh, coast had no idea about. Yeah, incredible. Incredible timing, magic times. Very, very. Also, in addition to hip hop, because I was, I was there at that time too in New York. Well, obviously you're, you know, you're one of the pioneers, my brother. <laughs> but there was also an incredible club dance music scene in New York that's revolutionary. You know, like the, mm. the, um, the ESG and the Bush Tetras and Conk, all of the music that, that I guess now the closest version of it in the world would be LCD Sound System. You know, they're, they're sort okay. of in the lineage of that New York club dance music that was so uh, insistent and hypnotic and exciting. Yeah. And that didn't exist anywhere else. That was a real New York yeah. vibe. And I didn't get that till later. Like I missed that early hip hop, like that club thing in New York. I was too young, but I started to party in New York when I was, you know, 
18 when I started going back to New York after high school. And it was beginning of the house music and the, you know, the Paradise Garage and all those spots and all those great DJs. And yeah, but I, I missed I missed that part of the of the clubbing. I was too young. Do you remember punk rock at all or was that before you? My first introduction to punk was in Santa Monica. That that sort of West Coast version of uh what was going on. There were- uh, Like Black Flag. Black Flag. Circle Jerks. Uh, Circle Jerks. There was a band that my, that my girlfriend's brother was in called Sin 34. But yeah, it was that whole LA thing. Was Red Cross one of yeah. them? Absolutely. Red Cross had long hair and they yeah. had more of a 60s punk rock style. They were really cool. Yeah. They used to play, you know, on the pier and different places in, in, in town and- you know, Santa Monica and Venice. So what else was going on musically when you came to California, in addition to the punk rock, they didn't have hip hop yet. Okay, so when I got to LA, okay, I, in New York City, it was R&B, it was WBLS, Frankie Crocker. Yep. So that was R&B and funk, you know, I was going to see things with my parents. So I knew about blues, I knew about gospel, I knew about, you know, funk and, and R&B and soul and, but rock was not around me so much then. And my parents weren't so into it at that time. So I moved to LA, I come to Santa Monica and I meet all these kids who are skating and smoking weed and their parents are hippies. And I hear Led Zeppelin for the first time. And I hear The Who and I hear Cream and you know Hendrix and everything. And that, The Doors and everybody, that opened my head up and blew my mind. Yeah. It's interesting that, that for you, rock music is your music as opposed to your parents' music. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like R&B would yeah. have been your parents' music and jazz. Of course, that was in their, that was in their wheelhouse. Yeah. You know? So you grew up always hearing that. But then when you heard, I guess, hard rock music, that was sort of, yeah. that was yours. Yeah, absolutely. I discovered that on my own with my friends and... You know, that all went together, skating and surfing and Zeppelin and smoking weed and, you know, yeah. hanging out. That was all one thing. We'll be right back with more from Lenny Kravitz and Rick Rubin after a quick break. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer, so they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. 
How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies. The cellular vehicle to everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. We're back with Rick Rubin and Lenny Kravitz. When did you start playing? Well, we had a piano in New York in our apartment. We had a little spin it upright piano in our little one bedroom apartment that I used to bang on. And then my dad had an acoustic guitar, a classical one with nylon strings that my mother apparently had bought him because he sort of expressed some interest in maybe learning how to play it. And I think she uh, was into the idea of being serenaded by her husband, but he never, he never quite got it. So this guitar used to be in the closet and I used to bring, I used to t- take it out when they would go out, when I had, you know, the babysitter would come watch me and I would go into the closet and it was this forbidden thing that I wasn't allowed to play with, but I was completely attracted to it. So I started like that. And then my father bought me my first guitar when I was maybe eight, took me to Manny's on 48th Street and uh, bought me an acoustic guitar. And that's how I started. And then I went to, I went to, a, I went to a summer camp upstate New York uh, in Roscoe, New York, it was a camp called Lincoln Farm, where kids learned how to live on a farm and deal with animals and deal with, you know, planting and kayaking and, you know, all, all the things you would do. And there was a guy there who was teaching kids how to play basic chords on guitar. And I learned how to play, you know, Country Roads, Take Me Home, you know, West Virginia and all that. And learning how to play folk songs. Then when I went to LA, I got my first electric guitar and my dad bought me a Fender Jazz Master, like Elvis Costello. I didn't know about Elvis Costello then, but, and then I traded it in a couple years later for a Les Paul. But, and that's where I started copying, you know, learning how to play Zeppelin and Kiss and, you know, Jimi Hendrix and trying to figure all that stuff out. And then drums came and then bass came after that. What was the first band you put together or first band you played with? They weren't bands at first. They were... Just jams? Jam sessions. We used to have friends that we'd go to their houses near where I grew up, most of them, in Baldwin Hills. And we would jam. And we would sit there and just comp on two chords for, you know, five hours. Those, those jam sessions at, in Baldwin Hills were like funk jam sessions. We're learning how to play Rick James and the Gap Band and... Uh, you know, Earth, Wind, and Fire and all that. And then I would jam with my friends in Santa Monica and we'd be playing the rock stuff, you know? Yeah. So I had two groups of friends learning. Again, everything was always like that. It was the yin and the yang, the contrast. And then I slowly figured out how to put it all together because I loved both sides. I remember going to your house in Baldwin Hills. You went to my mom's house? Absolutely. Oh, okay. And it's interesting too, bringing up that like funk, funk wasn't so big in New York, but funk was really big in California. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's interesting that you got to be in that world. The fact that you moved around the way you did really did expose you to completely different experiences culturally and musically. And it's almost like you lived multiple lives, even in, even just going from Baldwin, Baldwin Hills to Santa Monica in those two worlds. Mm-hmm. It's like, most of the kids in each of those places only played in that one place. Absolutely. And you got to experience oh, both. School, school was extremely clicky. Like at John Adams, the surfer skater kids sat in one area, you know, when outside, you know, for lunch and whatever. The black kids were in one area. The Dungeons and Dragons kids are in 
hanging out in one group. And then you had the Mexican kids, which a, a lot of them came from Venice and you had them and it was the whole V13 thing. And, you know, then you had like, we even had guys that were like truckers. I don't even know how that happened, but guys who would wear like Peterbilt hats and t-shirts and they were into trucks. I mean, it was just all these groups of people. And then you had the musicians and the, the rock guys and the this guys. It, it was very clicky. And I had a really hard time figuring out who I was gonna hang out with because I dug them all. So I, I did that. I hung out with everybody. Do you remember any music shows that you got to see concerts or performances once you got to LA that as a kid that really like caught you? The first one was Earth, Wind & Fire. Incredible. 75, went to the Forum. My godmother had tickets. I mean, I, I knew Shining Star. I knew, like I'd heard a couple tunes, but I wasn't into them. Went to the Forum to go see them and it changed my life. So uh, that was my first show. And then we, we used to go see a lot of jazz concerts in LA. I remember going to see, going to Playboy Jazz. My parents used to take me every year to the Playboy Jazz Festival at the uh, Hollywood Bowl. And I, you know, We'd go see all their friends from Miles to Sarah to, you know, Count Basie and, you know, everybody. It was, uh, I remember seeing Weather Report. So getting to, getting to hang around with, with those jazz legends because they were friends of your parents, mm -hmm. what was it like being a kid, being around those people? Could you tell they were different? And if they were, how were they different? See, that's the thing. The first person I met was Duke Ellington. And I'm like five, so I don't know anything. But they took me to Soundcheck because it was my birthday. My fifth birthday was a Duke Ellington concert at the Rainbow Room. And they wanted to see him before the show, Soundcheck. They sit me on his lap. And I remember him just being, he had a white suit on, head to toe. And his hair was, you know, greased back. It was like salt and pepper, mostly, mostly white. Really elegant, soft-spoken cat. And I just loved the fact that I was sitting there while this guy played piano. Yeah. And I just remember the, the energy coming off of that piano. And then during the show, the Duke Ellington Orchestra plays Happy Birthday for me. Wow. And his lead saxophonist, Paul Gonzalez was his name, comes up to me right in my face, sing, playing the melody to Happy Birthday, right? While the orchestra's playing, you know, the arrangement. And I didn't realize until I was probably 13 who Duke Ellington really was. I mean, the American songbook, you know, the compositions. Uh, and it was the same for Miles. Miles was this really dark, when I say dark, I don't mean dark, evil dark, just dark, yes. interesting character. And uh, he'd be around us because he was, he was around me my whole life because he was married to my godmother, Cicely Tyson. And she and my mother were like sisters. So I was around Miles my whole life and he was just this character and I knew he was magical and I, I could feel that energy. Yeah. But again, not until I became a teenager did I understand who Miles Davis was. And we're going to the, you know, I, I remember that was during the time when he was turning his back to the audience and he would just play with his back to the audience because uh, he liked the way it sounded. And it was also, you know, a yeah. motherfucker of a move too, you know? Yeah. But I think the beauty of my childhood and, and those experiences were the fact that I did not understand who these people were. Yeah, of course. When you're a kid, it's like you go into every situation open. You know, you don't have, yes. you don't have a backstory to compare things to and you're just experiencing the world. And it's, you know, anything we can do to maintain that state as long as possible or tap back into it as much as possible keeps you alive and able to move forward and grow. Yes. And then it's beautiful to have been around them, to know them as human beings, and then say, oh, shit. Yeah. He's like, oh, my God, this guy I've been around is like an alien, you know? <laughs> Just the most incredible, you know? So I'm, I'm glad that it happened that way, yeah. you know? And there was nothing about fame or stardom or it was just like these were artists you know yeah so another another part of it that's interesting is the more you spend time around people like that yes you can look back and step away and think about how incredible they are and that they're aliens and you can't believe it and they're the greatest of all time right but then also you realize 
they're just people too. You know, they really are just exactly. people. They're just regular people. Mm-hmm. They may be good at what they do, but they are regular people. And everyone has that in them. You know, everyone has absolutely. that. It's not, it's not. We all, absolutely. Everybody's, everybody has a unique gift. Absolutely. And it's just for, finding it for and a tapping purpose. into it. Exactly. And my mother was always really good at explain, teaching me that through example, by example, because she was, you know, in her own right, extremely famous during that time. The Jeffersons was a cultural phenomenon, you know, 11 seasons of this historical TV show. The first interracial couple on primetime television, the first interracial kiss. And, you know, the show was groundbreaking. But during this time where she was experiencing this new level of fame, because fame in the theater world in New York is a different it's a whole different thing. It's about artistry. And if you know, you know, but if you don't know, you don't know. If you're not a theater goer, you know? And uh, all of a sudden she became extremely famous very fast. She was already a grown woman, knew who she was and was so humble and kept her feet on the ground. I mean, my mother during the height of her fame, we have no maid, we have no housekeepers, we have no assistants, there's no, Nothing. It's us. We're living together as a family and we're taking care of our house. Saturday morning, my mother is scrubbing the toilet in her bathroom, scrubbing the floor, cleaning the house. I'm cleaning the house. I'm ironing. I'm vacuuming. I'm doing the laundry. I'm washing the cars. You know, that's the way I grew up. And she was all, she would always tell me, that's my job. It's my craft. But that's not just who I am. And that's not the only thing that defines me. I'm a person. And she kept it real her entire life. And I'm, I'm so fortunate that, and I didn't understand it then because, you know, you're becoming 15 and 16 and, you know, my mom's driving a Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme. And, you know, I'm like, where's, where's the Rolls? Where's the Mercedes? Like, where, what, what's going on here? You're on, you're, you're, on, you're on the number one show in the country. And, and she was like, I don't, I don't need that. I don't, I don't require that. I don't, you know, it just wasn't her thing. And, she just kept it so real. And by the time I released my first album when I was 24, I had that in me. I had that bass, you know? I'd be on tour, come home from a, you know, sell out world tour. And uh, I'd come visit her and she'd be like, all right, I need you to take out the trash and do this and do that and do this and that. And it was wonderful, you know, because people are kissing your ass all over the planet. And you come home and it's like reality. <laughs> no. And I'm ju- and I'm just so thankful for that. All all of that stuff kept me on the ground. Yeah. What was it like for you having a mom who was so famous? Well, that was weird because I was not used to that. I mean, we were we lived our life lives as New Yorkers and you and especially, you know, cuz we lived off of 5th Avenue. So of course, along 5th Avenue, you have a lot of rich folks that live in gigantic apartments, you know, pre-war buildings. And so in New York City, if you were poor, if you were middle-class, if you were extremely rich, you still took the bus, but that was New York life. You take the bus if you try to go down Fifth Avenue. So we moved around New York City. You know, no one ever came up to my mother or, or, or very few people. Once we got to LA and the Jeffersons broke, you know, all of a sudden we're in, Lucky supermarket on Lincoln Boulevard, you know, in Pico. And uh, people are chasing my mother down the aisle while we're trying to buy groceries and people are freaking out and, you know, autographs. And it was just, it was, it was just a new thing. And she was really gracious about it. She was so good about it and took her time to deal with the people because she knew that these people were making her life. Yeah. You know, and, you know, if they're not watching, those Nielsen ratings aren't going anywhere, you know? But it was odd. It was odd for a while to like, whoa, people like coming into your space and freaking out, you know? I imagine. Tell me about the first album. How, how did you, how did the first album come to be? At that time I was hustling. I was trying to play, you know, do studio work, which was sparse for me because I wasn't known. Then I found a gig that was pretty good. I would make demos for people. 
if you if you had a song and you needed it produced and you needed a demo, you'd bring it to me. I'll play all the instruments. I'll arrange it. I'll put it together for you. And then you, you know, I'll produce your vocal and do, and okay, you got a demo, you can go. So I used to do that. I'd play behind other people in bands that were trying to make it, guitar player, bass player, drummer, whatever. And then I, I realized that I needed to make my own expression, but I didn't know what it was. I started trying, but it was labored and it didn't feel right yet, but I was searching. And then during the time when Lisa and I got together, we were having just an incredible, incredible relationship and a lot of magic and supernatural <laughs> vibes around us and love, creativity. And I, I moved into her house in Venice at that time. And uh, I put all my instruments in a room and just all came to me. Those songs st started downloading. And it was from all my experiences that I had before that, everybody that I'd seen, everybody I'd heard, all the life that I'd lived. And then it was our life and our love that opened up that portal. Beautiful. And Let Love Rule spilled out. I had no idea what style I was gonna do, what it was gonna be, what it, no idea. But it just started coming and coming. And then I borrowed money from my dad, which he was good enough to lend me to go into the studio to try to get this stuff out of me. And I did, I went back to New York, well actually to New Jersey, to Hoboken, and hired Henry Hirsch, who became my longtime engineer for many years. Because when I was working with him earlier, we realized that we had very similar tastes uh, to music and also to recordings and recording techniques. Went and worked with him, put this stuff down, wanted to hire a band because I wanted a band experience. I wanted to be in the studio like the documentaries I'd seen on all the great bands, the Stones and the Beatles and everybody. And, you know, I wanted to have fun. I wanted people there and I wanted it to be this hang and you're gonna have girls around, you're gonna be doing, you know. And I didn't have the money to hire musicians and the guys that would play for very cheap weren't cutting it. So Henry said to me, I heard you play keyboards. I heard you play drums. I heard you play bass. I heard you play guitar. Just do it, you know, do it. Like, you know, Stevie Wonder and Paul McCartney and Prince and just, just do it. I thought, well, that's gonna be boring. I wanna be around people. I wanna have this, this vibe, but I had no choice. So I said, all right, I'll do it. And it's funny cause I was so influenced and educated by people like Stevie Wonder and Paul McCartney and Prince. Yeah. Uh, and you got guys like Todd Rundgren and you know, who were one man bands, but I never thought of it. And once I started doing it, that was it. I fell into a hole, man. That was, it became my sound. I, I had no idea, by the way, I never knew that you played everything on that record. I never knew that until now. Mm. What would be the order of events to put down a song when you're playing everything yourself? I'd start with drums, which was challenging because I'm singing the song in my head with the arrangement while I'm playing the drum track. So, okay, shit, oh, 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 oh. wait a minute. Am I on the second verse? Like you had to really <laughs> know where the hell you were. Okay, now I'm on the bridge, now I'm on the outro and, and I would just sing the song in my head or Henry would uh, play piano or a Fender Rhodes or something and keep me, I'd teach him the arrangement. Yeah. And I, now I had somebody to play to, to actually groove with. And then we would take that part off or keep it in, 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 a, in a couple of instances and then build on top of that. And then after I would normally have a drum, then I would do uh, the guitar and get the chords and the rhythm and then bass and then keyboards and then whatever else. Then if I was doing an orchestration, you know, I'd bring in the, the string players or whatever and you know, just keep building on top. And then since the first album, you really haven't stopped. No. How many albums have you made? I don't know, 12? Wow. 13, 12, 13, yeah. And you've done at least, at least one world tour for every one of those albums, I imagine. Oh no, absolutely. The reason that the albums were two, were, you know, most of them were three years apart. 
sometimes four, you know, I, I, I tour a lot and I would go around the world and I would tour for two years, you know, and then I have to chill and I have to feel myself and see what's going on inside of me and, you know, before I can do another record. But yeah, I have not stopped. I have, I have two albums in the can right now. What's the most fun part of the process for you, would you say? Recording, man. I love the studio. I still love the studio as much as I did when I was a kid. I remember going to recording studios when I was a young teenager with my dad in LA when he was producing folks and trying to do things in the music business. Just the magic of walking into this space where music is made with the console and the instruments and the equipment and the producer and the arrangers and the, you know all these folks that used to hang out back in the day. And I still have that feeling when I walk into my own studio because it's a place where magic happens and you don't know what it's gonna be. You don't know when it's gonna come. You don't know how it's gonna be until you finish it. Even if you have it in your head, a lot of times it comes out- Different. Differently yeah. than it, you had imagined it. And I love that process of painting with music and not knowing what you've got until it's done. And uh, there are always surprises. There are always challenges, as you know. I love being in the studio. I can be in here day and night and uh, I'm not, I, I don't get tired of it. I've been doing this now professionally for 31 years. And I was in studios hanging out, you know, during my mid to late teens, not jaded. Beautiful. And there's something also about being able to play all the instruments so I can come in here, you know, by myself essentially. And I can, yeah. I can make something. There's something very satisfying about that as well. We're gonna take a quick break and then we'll be back with more from Lenny Kravitz. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know the fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the Customer Experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. 
I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. We're back with Rick Rubin and Lenny Kravitz. You've started doing creative work beyond music. What's the first thing you got to do outside of music? Design. That was my first thing. I didn't, I didn't even see that really coming, but it started by just designing my own places and working, you know, working on furniture and interiors, which was, uh, which came because, again, not having any bread in the beginning, when I lived in Soho, before Soho was all chic and all, living on Broom Street, yeah. I used to go out and take the furniture that people would put on the side of the street for garbage. And I used to take it and fix it or change it or, you know, recover it. Or, and it kind of started like that when I did my first loft on Broom Street back in the day when I was making Let Love Rule. And, uh, you know, I've always been into design as you have been. I mean, Same. I remember walking into your house for the first time on Miller and I was, I was like, man, this guy... This guy's got some taste. <laughs> I mean, you such such beautiful place and concepts and the way you put things together. So, I mean, you're a designer as well, bro. But um, then I ended up, you know, buying places, fixing them up, selling them, buying them, fixing it, selling it up. And then it got to the point where it just got ridiculous. I was like, I can't keep doing this. So I started a company where I could do it for other people. So I started Kravitz Design and... Um, it's been really great. We've been working a lot and still working now, even during this time, on several private homes, a hotel in Detroit, different products, working with different companies. And Wow. The last two years, I was a creative director for Dom Perignon. Wow. So I, I, did, I did their photography, which is another thing I do. I shot their ads. Um, I designed their products, redesigned bottles, labels, you know, their whole presentations. That's something that I do even when I'm recording, even when I'm on tour, I continue to work. If I have to be working on a project, say a hotel project um, that we're designing and making furniture and doing things, my team will fly out to me when I'm on the road, hang out on the tour bus or the plane or the ho whatever, the hotel will work and then they'll go back and, you know, put that into play. But it's something that I continue to do no matter what Great. I'm doing. It's, it's interesting how the different creative uh, avenues play off each other and how ultimately it really is just all about taste. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. I would assume that whether you're producing a record or designing your house, it's... Same thing. It's the same energy. It's the same flow. You start with nothing. You start with an idea, a concept, and you start and you, it just grows until it's finished. I mean, yeah. it's the same process. In fact, you influenced me a lot, actually, because the first time that I'd really, what well, was actually, it's actually you 
and Sean Lennon and Yoko because you guys were the first people that I saw that had opium beds in their houses. Mm. And I remember getting into that whole thing and then starting to learn about uh, Balinese furniture and furniture from you know different places in the East. And but definitely, you know, as people we haven't talked about it yet, but for your listeners, I mean, Rick and I lived together by virtue of his generosity and his kindness. I remember you just say, you, you saying, I, I, I just got this house. And, uh, you know, when you're in LA, you're, you're, you know, stay there. It's all good. Just, you can stay there. It's a big house. I got room. And I remember moving in there actually before you did. Yeah. This was, this was right at the time I was doing the Are You Gonna Go My Way video. Or right before actually, because I, uh, Cindy Blackman came, I flew her out from New York and she came and stayed in the house and auditioned and got the, got the, uh, the gig in your house. It was actually in your garage, in your It was like the gym, the gym downstairs, yeah. That's right. And, uh, but I, I remember living in your house while there was plastic everywhere. It was dusty. They were still painting and plastering and doing. And I loved it. I was like- Yeah, construction, it was full construction zone. Full. And I had like a futon on the floor, but I was in heaven. I had this, I had this place to myself and it was a really- it's a very special time for me. Craig Ross uh, was, was, was living there with me as well. And we were just having, I, I remember having all these drummers coming. In fact, River Phoenix had a friend that he knew from Florida that he flew in because he said, this is your drummer. And it actually got down to that guy and Cindy. Wow. And we must've seen about 50 drummers that were coming through your place, man. Yeah. But it, it was just a really special time where I was exploring LA again during this time of, you know, my success, which was very interesting. Yeah, I learned so much hanging out with you and just, I mean, you, you really treated me like family, bro. And I mean, the whole story of, uh, you know, my mother and her going through her sickness and her passing with such a monumental song there's a song on my last album. I don't even think we've talked about this, but there's a song on my last album called Johnny Cash. You should check it out. I it's will. on Ray's Vibration. And it's dealing with that, with the day that I found out that my mother passed. I was in Japan touring for a month. I didn't know that my mother was going to, you know, die that quickly. We thought she had more time. I didn't want to go on the tour but she and my grandfather made me go. My grandfather said, if you don't go, it's gonna kill her. You have to go do your job. So I reluctantly went. I flew home from Japan. I went straight to your house, went to my room, went to the hospital, went and saw her. We were there for hours and hours. My dad had flown from New York. The family was there. And it was time for everybody to like take a break, go get something to eat. I needed to take a shower, do whatever. I drove to your house, and this was when Johnny Cash was living in your house as well, doing that classic album that y'all did. And I walked in the house and the phone rang. I don't remember who gave me the phone. And they told me that my mom passed in the time that I was driving from the hospital to your house. So I'm standing there by the staircase with this portable phone in my hand even though I knew it was coming, it was still a very hard moment for me. And Johnny and June are coming down the stairs and they looked at me and said, hey, Lenny, like, I mean, I didn't know them. We, we knew each other because we passed each other in your hallways. Yeah. You know, that's the extent that I knew Johnny Cash. We were flatmates in Rick Rubin's house, right? And so they said, what's wrong? And I said, my mother just died. And the two of them came to me and surrounded me and held me. I don't know these people. And by the way, it's Johnny Cash, right? And June Carter. And they held me and consoled me and just were saying the most beautiful, comforting things and that they were sorry. And it was just a real moment of humanity, of just being human. And it was a monumental moment in my life because the only people that were there when I found out was them. Then you drove with me to the to hospital, the hospital yeah. and you were the first, I mean, you came in there with me. 
we saw my mother there together. I remember. You were with me. And uh, anyway, so there's a song on the last album where I was going through a breakup and I'm writing to this person and the chorus of the song says, just hold me like Johnny Cash when I lost my mother, whisper in my ear, just like June Carter. Beautiful. Uh, and though I fight these tears that I hide, just hold me tight for the rest of my life. And so it deals with me reflecting on the last time that I was comforted in such a way, what I needed from this person that I was singing to was that Johnny Cash held me when my mother died. It's, it's deep, but it's, yeah, this was all part of the adventure of, uh, and the experience of living with you. Yeah, my, my greatest memory from that night, it's the only time I've ever been in the room with uh, a body after the soul mm. had passed. Yes. And I remember walking in and thinking, and I'd seen her much more recently than you did. I, I don't know if you remember this part of the story. I ran into her. You saw her at a restaurant. I saw her in a restaurant at a weird time, at a time when the restaurant should have been closed. Mm -hmm. An unusual time. I went to a restaurant that I didn't normally go to at a weird time of the day. It was empty. I sit down and it was like 3.30 in the afternoon, which is like way after lunchtime. Most restaurants close, you know, usually they're yes. open for lunch and open for dinner and just felt like going to get something needed at a weird time. Found that Angeli was open. Don't know why mm -hmm. I went there because it was a restaurant I never went to. Sitting at, sitting in there with uh, my friend Fred, who was the designer who helped me work on my house. Yeah, the house. guy who built your house. Yeah, yeah, Fred I remember Sutherland. Fred. We're sitting there and who comes in but your mom. And this is maybe... I'm going to say three weeks before. So I was in Japan during You were in Japan, time. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Maybe two weeks before. Very mm -hmm. soon. And I remember the conversation we had because it was so different than any conversation we had had over the last few years. Because over the last few mm. years, your mom was very defiant. And she was very clear that she was going to beat this. And mm. that she was going to do everything it took to beat it. And she would... And she, and she was really strong and she was always doing well through this and would try everything and do every type of alternative therapy. Oh yeah, she went to Mexico, did the whole holistic thing, yeah. And we would, I remember we would research together for her and with her and share yeah. ideas all the time. And I saw her in the restaurant and she was completely different and in this state of peace that was mm -hmm. unbelievable. And I asked her how things were going and she said, Everything is, it's like, it's wonderful. Mm. I know that I'm going to pass. I'm completely at peace mm -hmm. with it. I'm ready. And this is, this is like, this is what happens now. And she was wow. at one with the experience, ready for the experience. Mm. And then back at the house, you came from Japan. Right. And I told you the story because I didn't know if she got to tell you this. I don't know. I didn't know if she, she didn't. So I got to tell you yeah. th that she was ready to go and it was okay. Yeah, no, I remember now. Yeah. And as we're having this conversation, the phone rang. Because mm -hmm. you, you need, it felt like the energy of you fighting for her with her shifted mm. when you knew that she was ready to go it's like mm. when you heard the story the energy changed mm. she was she you now knew that she was ready to go because she was right and then the phone rings and it's the hospital mm. and yeah. it was almost like energetically once you knew the story she could go because until yeah, then yeah. you she was Fighting and she was obviously you. waiting for me to get off that plane, you know? Exactly. Because by the time I got there that day, I mean, it was the last moment, yeah, you know? Yeah, 100%. And I remember when we went, you, you went to the hospital with me, but I thought you were just like, like okay, you're going to go to the hospital with me and you're going to support me. And then I went in and you kept walking. I was like, you want to come in the room? And you, and you looked at me and you were like, yes. Like, it was like, it was the most definite yes. Like, yes. There was some connection... And I'm sure from your years of knowing her and also that, mo that moment you guys had at that restaurant, but you, you wanted to be there and you went in there with me. And uh, yeah, that was, that was her send off, man. 
Yeah. And what, so my takeaway in that moment of seeing her was, and having just seen her two weeks earlier, was whatever was laying on the table there was not her. Right. That was just... Okay. Yeah, of course. That, and of I, course. I never experienced that before. But it was clear. It's like, that's just clothing. That's just bones. That's just flesh. Yeah. But it's that's a not it's her. It's a vessel. It's a vessel. 100%. And it couldn't have been clear. That's where I learned it. In that moment was, wow. that's not her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amazing. All in all, extraordinary memories and, you know, the blessings that I've had thus far and you being a big part of that story that part of my life is i'm really grateful man i'm really grateful same i love having you in my life we've been good friends for a long time and they're they're, yeah, hard, man. To, they're hard to come by and one day and we're gonna we're gonna make some music together great i look forward yes sir well i love you i love you brother i'm so glad to see your face and uh let's speak sooner than later man i'm down all right my brother love Love, love, love. Thanks to Lenny Kravitz for sharing so much of his incredible story with Rick. You can hear all of our favorite Lenny Kravitz songs on the playlist at brokenrecordpodcast.com. And be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast. There you can find extended cuts of our new and old episodes. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, Eric Sandler, and is executive produced by Mia LaBelle. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. And if you like Broken Record, please remember to share, rate, and review our show on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Peace. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results, like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings for the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility.